0: Most of you are here in seminary honing your gifts for ministry and no gift will be more important than to recognize and lift up the gifts in the people around you. And Danny, (laughs) Reverend Key, being around him is like being at a masterclass in how to cultivate and encourage other people's gifts. So thank you for that class that we're all in with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for this day to worship you. We await the word that you have prepared for each of our ears, Lord, each of us personally, and Lord, this community that waits and gathers and prays for the world to be more like your kingdom on earth than it ever has before. Make it so today, dear God. Amen. Amen. Well this year, as our family um, went to decorate for Christmas, as Jim pulled the boxes up from the basement, it seemed that they had multiplied. I just thought, have we ever had this many Christmas decorations? I mean, there were just boxes and boxes, and it it reminded me of a year when I had one box. (laughs) Not a box of many Christmas decorations, but really I started with one Christmas decoration. It was uh, my last year of college, and my roommate and I, we had been roommates for a couple years in the dorms and we had branched out and finally gotten an apartment of our own. I mean, real grown up living, right? And so I was eager to decorate that place uh, as we would for Christmas for the very first time and I had big dreams and a small budget. So I went to Walmart and I found there the one thing that fit within my budget, a um, $5 glass nativity set with maybe five or six pieces in it. Uh, It was not blown glass, it was not cut glass. You could see the seams around the edges where it had been poured into molds and mass produced, but I loved it. And I brought it home, the one Christmas decoration we would have that first year. And I began to set it up on our entertainment center. And I was just laying out the central pieces, Mary and Joseph and the baby, when my roommate walked in and she took one look at my work and said, you're doing it wrong. I thought, how can you set up a nativity scene wrong? How can there be a wrong to this, right? We're not worshiping anything but Jesus. What, you know, what does she mean by wrong? Uh, so she explained that in her family, um, they left the manger empty until Christmas Day. Some of you are nodding, you've heard of this tradition. They put out everyone else, but Jesus did not arrive until his birthday. There was an empty manger until December 25th. And so she believed that that was the right way to celebrate Christmas, and I explained to her that no, my way was, in fact, the right way. So I put Jesus right there in the manger. Actually, Jesus was attached to the manger. So they went in together, (laughs) front and center, so she could see clearly how it was done. And then I left and went to class. And when I returned a couple of hours later, I knew right away that something was wrong. Jesus was missing. Kidnapped. The manger too, they went everywhere together and so knew exactly who the guilty party was, no need for an Amber Alert. My instincts told me he could not have gone far attached to that manger. And so I opened the top drawer of the entertainment center and found right there my first spot to look, nestled in the middle of tangled extension cords, the savior of the world. So I took him out and I set him back at the center of the nativity. And then I went to my room to do some studying probably to take a nap, but for the purpose of (laughs) encouraging you in your studies this week, I was studying, and I came out of my room a couple hours later and glanced to the entertainment center, and you guessed it, Jesus had gone missing again. Thus began an epic battle between roommates, She would hide Jesus, I would find him and put him back. Once my back was turned, he would disappear again. This went on through the entire month of December until we went home from the holidays. Now the hiding places, it was a small apartment, the hiding places got harder and stranger. Once I pulled open the knife drawer to find him nestled between sharpened blades. No place for a baby. And so I pulled him out, and I yelled wherever she was in her room so that she could hear me, I found Jesus! And I walked over and I set him back where he went. Once, I was washing my hair. And when I lifted up the shampoo bottle, it rattled a little bit. And there, suspended, floating in the shampoo, was the Lamb of God. And so I shouted, even over the sound of the shower, I found Jesus well the climax of this battle happened when finally there was a day that I could not find him at all I searched everywhere I could think of the places she had hidden them the places she hadn't thought to hide him I think I went a week with no Savior and I even I even kind of gave up looking um, it was like the Christmas decorators version of the dark night of the soul you know no Jesus but I had no energy left to look And then one day I walked over to our aquarium to feed the fish. And as I took out that little bottle and sprinkled the fish food flakes in the top, I noticed that one flake floated gently down and landed on a tiny eternal face. (laughs) And I yelled out, of course. What did I yell? I I found Jesus! That was the last place. years later i thought i never stopped to wonder what our neighbors must have thought (laughs) right of these two strange young women having quite the religious experience (laughs) yelling to each other right there in apartment 210 over and over again of their encounters with jesus and i i will not say that my roommate ever converted me to her way of seeing things and i'm sure i did not convert her in my home right now there are at least five nativity scenes, each with a sleeping baby at its centerpiece. But I do understand the sentiment. I do understand now what her decorating delay was trying to teach me. It's something that goes so much deeper than decorations. And it goes straight to the heart of Advent. There are probably very few things more countercultural than celebrating Advent, this season of waiting, when the entire world has been celebrating Christmas since the day after Halloween and some before. It, it's countercultural to sing ancient carols in minor keys while Holly Jolly Christmas and Santa Baby are playing on Mixmas for two months. It, it's countercultural to take time to reflect in a season of hoping and waiting and longing and restraint even as the world parties and shops till they drop and indulges all around us. Advent is the divine waiting room where we prepare ourselves for the arriving child, make ourselves ready for Jesus' arrival at Christmas. It's the space where we remind ourselves that he's coming again. He's, a second coming is on the horizon. We remind ourselves of that. It's an event the whole world is groaning for, whether they know it or not. And the problem with just you know, throwing the baby in the manger there on the first day and calling it Christmas is that we aren't ready to deliver a baby, especially one that's divine. It's not that we shouldn't be joyful and merry and bright. We of all people know the deep meaning of this system. It's just just without preparation, our culture goes ahead and has a premature birth, even as we're still waiting. So Christmas without Advent means we are so excited about the Christmas story that we haven't taken time yet to figure out what story are we really telling? Where does it stand in all of God's story for humanity? We're, we're not sure sometimes if this story is a story of Rudolph or Frosty or the Grinch or hundreds of other TV specials I could name. It's like we're, we're groping for a story that will fit the celebrations we've invented instead of looking for a celebration to match the story we've inherited. Tomorrow, I will get to drive into Lexington and visit with a group Julie Tennant's very familiar with called Friendship International. Uh, It's a group of scores of women, maybe over 100 women from around the world who have, many of them, never heard the Christmas story before. And, And they gather together each Friday, but in this season, someone, some blessed person gets to come and tell them the story, this year, it's me. I met with one of the leaders and she said that one of the women recently had asked her group leader, I keep seeing decorations in people's yards, a man and a woman kneeling and a little table between them. She said, tell me, what is that on that table? That's the story I get to tell tomorrow. And I promise preaching to you is fun, (laughs) but this will not probably count as my favorite moment of the week. I've never told this story to anyone but children who haven't heard it before. So think to yourself if you had come brand new into this culture and tried to figure out just what was going on based on yard decorations. A man and a woman and something strange on a table between them, I can imagine also wondering, what then are Rudolph and Frosty and the Grinch doing right next to them in the yard? Where do they fit into this story? As strange as those images are to try to connect to our understanding of Christmas time, our strange pre-Christmas advent story includes melancholy and mysterious passages, words from odd prophets like Isaiah, the one read for us today. There's a barren tree stump to start this passage, one that's been dormant for ages, a sign that something alive has died actually all of a sudden has a little sprig popping up out of it. There's an Advent image for you. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. O radix, the antivon called it in Latin. O root of Jesse. This is one of the strange images guiding us in the waiting room of Advent. Now just to hear the name Jesse would immediately have made people flash back and start whispering about his son, David, right? The bright spot in Israel's history that included stories of exodus and exile, the time when Israel flourished like a great oak, only to be cut down because of its own disobedience and rebellion. But now this image, a shoot coming up from the stump, It's the hope that Israel could grow mighty again. It's reaching back into this memory of a great towering oak of David's kingdom. This would be breathtaking for people with hope. This picture of Jesse's tree, a, a new sprig of green sprouting from the center, it means that for the people who have been hoping beyond hope and waiting beyond reason, that their chance to rejoice is just around the corner. There's life springing up even among God's people that had given themselves up for dead. You know anybody like that? Any people that have given up? Any churches that might have given up? Any institutions that are on the verge of giving up, looking for hope and new life springing? This tiny sprig is a chance for us to join in the rejoicing, but a tiny sprig is also something that implies more waiting, Right? I mean, how long would it take for that tiny shoot to become a towering tree? More waiting is on the way. Henry Nouwen said, waiting is a period of learning, and the longer we wait, the more we will hear about him for whom we are waiting and learning. And you know about waiting and learning. Basically, those are the two things you do in seminary, right? You're here to wait, and you're here to learn. This is what seminary is all about. Wait and learn, wait and learn. This is a waiting room for ministry. Who knows which door will open and what will lie beyond it. But your learning, as Nowin said, is not just about the things in the books. It's about waiting for the one and learning more of the one for whom we wait. The waiting of Advent is just what we need to ready ourselves for the miracle of Christmas. This is what we set our internal calendars by to learn about, long for, and finally receive our Savior once again. Every single year, it's as if the church grows pregnant with hope and mystery and morning sickness all over again. Every single year, we deliver. We find Jesus. Or rather, you're good seminary students, right? He finds us, right? Then every single year, Christmas begins and what will be a slow march to the cross and the tomb and the Easter resurrection, this ancient calendar, it's like a clock that's right by which we can all set our own clocks. We line up our lives and our calendars and our stories with the calendar of Christ. We live this story in our own lives. God's story every year, and it takes doing it again and again to make its mark on us. We need Advent because we are terrible at waiting. Just admit it. Your smartphone's made it worse. You can't even stand in line for two seconds without pulling it out to see what notifications there are. You won't stand in line between two other people in the grocery store before you head over to self-checkout because it might be faster you know they should be paying you a paycheck for that, right? <laughs> you, you can't wait for the car in front of you to go at the light without getting that anxious feeling inside. You're terrible at waiting. We all are. Most of us are not good waiters. That's why we need training to wait. That's Advent. Because most of our lives will be filled with waiting, not just this season, I'm sorry to tell you, Every season will have its own waiting. Every stage of life will seem like the next one will be the one where you have arrived, especially here in this beautiful and temporary and transitional time of seminary. But the world is full of waiting. So if we don't train to wait each year, we'll never learn to do it well. To receive the bittersweet, the beautiful lessons that God brings in the waiting, we have been tricked by those chocolate advent calendars, to assume that what we wait for is behind a door that we can open for ourselves, and that it's always sweet and always predictable. Oh, that life were like a chocolate advent calendar. <laughs> the truth is we don't always enjoy waiting, and we never control it, or we probably wouldn't wait, but we will all experience lives marked by waiting. You are immersed in the study of scripture in one class or another or all of them right now, the biblical narrative is full of people who wait, right? There's a lot of waiting in this story. Abraham and Sarah, Noah, Simeon and Anna, Hannah, Elizabeth, Zachariah, the Exodus, the exile. Think about the people who wait in scripture. What's the point of that? Can't we get through this story a little faster if they just didn't have to wait? Think about what happens to the people whose stories tell us what happened when we don't wait. Esau sells his birthright because he's a little hungry. Aaron conjures a golden calf because he just can't wait. The prodigal demands his inheritance. These are not the stories we're supposed to be modeling our lives after. The biblical story is full of waiting. So rather than our times of waiting making us outliers, that actually just makes us human. That is part of this wife life together. Waiting prepared each of these people in scripture in ways for the work that God had ahead of them. Imagine if they hadn't had to wait. Imagine Abraham and Sarah as teenage parents. I mean, that's kind of funny, right? Almost as funny as people in their 90s. Imagine what God's people's story might have been like with immature and undeveloped parents to grow it. Every every moment of waiting in Scripture is part of the work that God is doing in people's lives. Why should we be surprised when waiting is part of his work in ours as well? Waiting is not dead air or static. It's a time to pay attention to where God is at work. So if we embrace waiting as a part of life, we will learn to beware this cultural idea that happiness is always around the next corner, that it's the next place, the next degree, the next relationship, the next church, the next semester, the next break, the next stage of parenting, the next occupation, the next marital status, the next financial stage, the next thing that holds happiness. The world will sell you on that, and they'll sell you a few things to get you to the next stage faster. But it's just not true that that's where happiness lies, around the page turn. Until we give up the idea that happiness is somewhere else, it will never be where we are. So Advent sets our internal calendars to get us ready to wait. It reminds us that waiting is part of the human condition but it's also part of the divine condition. Did you know that we have a waiting God? Waiting is a godly act. It is divine. If you think you've waited for things in your life, think about how God feels. Imagine being immortal, that's a lot of waiting. (laughs) You think you're tired of waiting to graduate? Have a little empathy for God, why don't you? I mean, imagine standing at the gates of Eden putting animal skins on Adam and Eve, and wishing you could go ahead and clothe them in your own righteousness. Imagine the years the eternal Son of God waited for the manger, ready to come and meet us in the flesh, ready for that phrase, in due time, to come into effect. Imagine standing at Lazarus's grave, weeping, calling for him to come forth, wishing you could just go ahead and defeat death forever already. And Lazarus was not the only person that Jesus loved who died. Imagine how he felt going through the deaths of his loved ones, waiting to offer eternal life. Listen to Jesus looking out over Jerusalem, calling out, How I have longed, God longs, how I have longed to gather you up like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing the longing, waiting heart of God. We look to God and ask, how long, O Lord? How long till you fix it? Make this broken place right, and God may be looking at us saying, how I long too. We pout and pray and yell at God about things not yet done. What are you waiting for, we ask God, but we need to remember God has done a lot of waiting and is waiting still. Go back to our passage from Isaiah past Jesse's tree where the small green shoot is starting to sprout. Here's a picture that Isaiah offers of the kingdom become complete. A picture that artists have painted over the years and called things like a peaceable kingdom. Animals that are natural enemies are suddenly getting along together. A wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a goat, a calf and a lion, a cow and a bear, things that would eat other things lying down peacefully with them. They're they're grazing, resting together. Here's a picture of what God is longing to bring into being. No more enmity in nature, no more enmity between humans and nature, and no more enmity between the humans on the earth. Notice between humans and nature, notice the, the infant putting his hands down near the snake's den. Ooh, that should give you shivers. Sometimes when uh, Texans get together, we we tell snake stories, it's just what we do. (laughs) Stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, stories about someone who found a snake here or there in an unexpected spot. When you listen to these stories, trust me, you will look before you sit down. (laughs) You'll look before you step, but I will tell you that in none of the snake stories, Does anyone put their baby down next to the snake's lair? No one does it. Isaiah's picture makes no sense to us. This picture of nature completely healed has only one explanation. God has plans. And they're not yet fulfilled. This is what God is waiting for, still waiting. Imagine the patience of God. The wolf and the lamb are tearing each other apart still. And so are God's children. The patience of God as he paints a picture for us of a world that could be. God patiently waits and believes that the world will be healed in total. And if God can offer us this picture of a wolf and a lamb and a baby by the snake hole, he is certainly working on it even now. Our God is a waiting God. So we knew, most of us you know, have taken a worship class with Dr. Jonathan Powers or someone else. We knew what Advent was about. We knew that Advent was teaching us to wait for Jesus. What maybe we didn't know was that it's also turning out that it teaches us to wait like Jesus. To be made in God's image is to be a waiting people. And the fact that these words about a peaceable kingdom are still scripture unfulfilled reminds us that God is expecting this reality to break in on us, waiting alongside us, sharing his divine vocation of waiting with us, as this picture of the kingdom begins to come true around us and through us. This will take a miracle, and we are counting on it. If waiting makes us like God, then we are called to wait like God. He may wait patiently, but he does not wait passively, and nor are we called to do so. That's what these pictures do for us. They remind us to live into the kingdom that is not yet. To be, as N.T. Wright told us again and again, an outpost of heaven already here on earth. Did you hear a lot of that the week he was here? An outpost, set up shop and make it so. And so we work to combat evil and injustice in every place and every system, but first and especially in ourselves. And so we join the eternal longing of God that we would be made different this season. This is the way God waits, patiently but not passively. This is how we're called to wait. Waiting is not a waste of time. It is a divine trait and one that we can grow in. So for those of us who live in the already not yet tension here on earth, we're gonna find that there is always some holy dissatisfaction in this current age. So welcome to Advent, right? I mean, don't rush out to Merry Mixmas. Get some longing in your practices. Embrace the holy waiting, this season that celebrates not only the arrival of a baby in a manger, but the sprouting of something new out of something that was dead. And the arrival of a kingdom where all enmity is healed. These will serve to heighten our longing for the second coming of Christ, when all will be redeemed, all made whole. Advent reminds us that we are a waiting people with a waiting God. May God grant us the grace to wait well. Amen. That's where the sermon was supposed to end. (laughs) Until Tuesday. Epilogue. On Tuesday, I received an email from a recent Asbury graduate now out serving in the church. May it happen for all of you someday. Samuel Odubina was one of those amazing servants and students in our community who was here as a student for several years, but it turned out he was really our teacher while he was here. Some of you have been around long enough that you knew Samuel Odubina and his family while they were here. Every time I turned around, Samuel was praying over someone, prophesying over someone, praying healing for someone. Samuel is an African charismatic liturgical Anglican which shakes everything up in all the best ways. So here's the email that he sent me on Tuesday. Samuel told me that four years ago he stood here in Estes Chapel, knelt at this altar, and prayed over another student and his wife, Kennedy and Grace Okyocha. Some of you know them well as well. Kennedy just received his PhD in biblical studies from us. Kennedy was another African student and was here, as PH students are, for many years among us. And as Samuel put it, Kennedy and Grace have been married for 12 years without any child. But they kept trusting God and many people have prayed for them. The year that he was referring to, Samuel knelt here, right here at this altar in Estes and prayed, as he put it in his email, for the fruit of the womb for the baby that their hearts had longed for to be in their arms. And 12 years is a long time to wait. But Samuel was emailing me to let me know that last week he was headed to Lanesville, Indiana for a baptism, for the baptism of Kennedy and Grace's baby. And so I want to introduce you to Joel Okiocha. Praise God. I will say his first name, Joel. (laughs) Joel, a blessing from the Lord. Now, not everyone who waits is guaranteed an answer to their waiting in the way that they ask for it. We know that. But everyone who waits and turns to Jesus in their waiting receives Jesus. And then it turns out the blessings that come are secondary to God's presence with us. Kennedy and Grace have in their arms a sign of God's faithfulness, but also in their hearts they know a waiting God better than many of us ever will. So Samuel wasn't just emailing me with news so I could have a fun ending to my sermon. He was emailing to fulfill a promise he had made and to make a request of us. He let me know that when he prayed right here in Estes Chapel with Kennedy and Grace at the altar, he made a personal vow to God. And the vow was that when this baby was born, we in Estes Chapel would say a prayer of thanks to God. He was emailing me a request for us to pray and to share in the joy of those who have seen their longing fulfilled. And I believe, because I let them know that we were online, that it's possible that Samuel and the Okioches are joining us online today. And so we say to you, God's greatest blessings, and thank you for inviting us to share in your joy. So I wanna invite you to stand where you are as a sign of gratitude and grace. As we say a prayer, a blessing over Kennedy and grace and baby Joel. Let us pray. Lord, to fulfill a single vow that a man made at this altar, we praise you today. God, to fulfill the cries of 12 years, we turn to you with thanksgiving. Lord, you have heard the cries of Kennedy and Grace. You have heard Samuel's prayer in this very room all these many years ago. And we who can stand here now give you praise for the gift of new life. We praise you for the new life of Joel. Raise him up as a faithful prophet according to his namesake. May he grow in wisdom. May he be told his story. May he know that he is a miracle from you, and may he be a miracle worker in your power. May he be a powerful witness to your gospel, and may he bring his parents great joy. And may 12 years of prayer be mirrored in a lifetime of prayers answered. Thank you, Lord, for answered prayers and for all the prayers contained in all the hearts of those within my hearing today that we would trust you and wait with you well. Thank you for being a God that never loses patience even when we do. Thank you for being a God who comes and waits with us and brings all of the good things into being that we have longed for. Lord, let heaven and nature be healed and sing to your glory all praise and glory to you Emmanuel. Amen.